0: Since none of you are really, not many of you are up walking around and talking, we'll just go right into the Word together. Lord, we pray that as we open your Word that you would speak to us. The Holy Spirit would take it off the page and implant it into our hearts. And, and Lord, you're the only one who knows every heart. You know what is in us and what we're about. And so we pray that you'd take your Word and use it in each of our lives as we need it. And that it would bring you glory and, and it would build us up. And we, we are thankful too, Lord, for the food that we're going to share after our time in here. For the work that's gone into that. Help us to bring you glory as we share in what you've provided for us. And we ask this all in Christ's great name. Amen. So the last song that we were singing, uh, a phrase that got repeated in the chorus part of it was, Love So Amazing love so amazing. What we are considering this morning is love so amazing, the love of God for sinners. And uh, while you don't have an insert uh, this week, the, the title of this sermon, as as you can see, is Words from a Loving Savior. Words from a Loving Savior. I think you'll pick that up as we go through uh, the sermon today. So this is one Sunday a year where we probably all Christians, or at least those who claim to be Christians, are focused in on the, the same truth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, but, you know, the truth is for many to focus on or to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus is to commemorate what could not possibly have happened. I mean, it's a myth. It It, it is to honor some fanciful dreams of those who had their hopes dashed when the when the one that they followed was cruelly killed. At best, it is honor a man who was a good teacher of values and a moral example that could be followed. But the truth of the matter is, as Christian author and teacher Josh McDowell wrote, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted on uh, the minds of men, or or it is the most fantastic fact of human history. It's one or the other. And Jesus was either Lord or he was a liar, because yeah. he said he would die and rise again, or he may have been a lunatic. Um, our view, of course, is that he was Lord. And this, uh, this wonderful truth that we celebrate today is the most impactful miracle in the Bible because it affects our eternal end. You know, to traditional Christians, no miracle recorded in the Bible is more important than this one. I mean, you can think of lots of miracles, the dividing of the Red Sea, people being raised from the dead, manna from heaven, all kinds of miracles, Jesus healing people, uh, giving sight to the blind, the lame could walk, the deaf could hear, leprosy no longer there, withered hands fully extended, lots of miracles that Jesus himself did, but none is more important than this. But we must understand that, that celebrating the resurrection of Jesus is really kind of meaningless unless you understand what took place on the Friday before resurrection Sunday. And so I I, I really want to take us through a little exercise of musing a little bit on what Jesus said from the cross. Get a message from the cross, from the words of Jesus, as well as get a message from the empty tomb, so to speak. We'll focus in on his suffering as well as this wonderful miracle of his resurrection. Together they declare the gospel the gospel, which is good news, good news for sinners from a loving Savior. So each of the four gospels do record the intense suffering of the Lord Jesus. It is, it is the true life and death story of the Son of God, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And having been found in fashion as a a man, he, in fact, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He who graciously humbled himself by coming into the world lived a perfect life of virtue and, and total denial. He was in life Despised and rejected by men, and even disbelieved and thought to be crazy by some of his own siblings, according to John 7 5. They thought he was out of his mind. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as was prophesied in Isaiah 53 and verse 3. His enemies were many and his friends were few, and in the end, even his friends deserted him in the garden. He was delivered into the hands of those who hated him most by one who had been his close friend and disciple. He was arrested during a time of intense prayer. He was unlawfully brought to trial by the religious leaders of his own people. And then, after plotting his death, those same people bound him and delivered him over to the Roman governor Pilate to be judged he stood silent as a a lamb before its shears, as the chief priests and elders of, of, of Israel vehemently accused him of violating the Jewish law, the very Jewish law that he came, by his own words, to fulfill. In fact, that Jesus did not defend himself before Pilate caused Pilate to be a little confused he, he he just couldn't get it. And he he declared, Pilate did, after an examination of Jesus, I find no fault in him. Five times, in fact, Pilate and King Herod declared that Jesus was innocent. And yet in the end, Pilate listened to the raging people outside, gave in to their desires, and he delivered over one man by the name of Barabbas, a murderer and insurrectionist, and sent Jesus to be scourged and crucified. The Roman garrison surrounded Jesus like a pack of wild dogs in fulfillment by Isaiah 50, or Psalm 22 in verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, They have pierced my hands and feet. Written a thousand years before Jesus suffered this way. The soldiers stripped him of his garments, and they began the brutal beating which he endured. In fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus gave his back to those who struck him and gave his cheeks for them to pull out his beard, and he did not hide his face from shame and the spitting That was in fulfillment of Isaiah 50 in verse 6. And so he was struck 39 times with the cat of nine tails. That was the Roman whip with ends containing pieces of iron or bones or sharp rocks. And it was designed to rip open the back of the one being inflicted. And thus another of Isaiah's prophecies was fulfilled. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, Isaiah 52, 14. When the scourging was complete, the soldiers put purple robes on him, and they did that to mock him, and they put a reed in his hands and put a crown of thorns on his head. They did that to mock him, and they cried out to him, Hail! Hail! king of the Jews. And they spat on him. They took the reed from his hand, and they struck him in the head, and they stripped him and led him out once again to be crucified. And the soldiers pushed him through the streets of Jerusalem along with the other two men that would be crucified with him. They were carrying their cross on which they would be hung. And Jerusalem, the city over which he had wept just days before, would the city which had killed the Old Testament prophets sent to them by God calling them to repentance this city would now be stained with the blood of the Son of God he was brought to Golgotha that word means the place of the skull and he was placed on the cross they nailed him fast to the the cruel wood which he himself had spoken into existence They they nailed him there, and he was lifted up. As he himself had prophesied, he would be, so that he could draw all men to repentance and faith. This was John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be lifted up and draw all men to to himself so that they might receive eternal life. So I want to ask you now to focus your attention if you will, on that scene there at Golgotha, on the place of the skull, the place where Jesus hung. And open your ears, if you will, to listen to a message from the cross, his, his message. Listen to the words of the Son of God as he hangs on the cross, suspended, as it were, between heaven and, and earth. And, and I think if you will listen, you'll hear his selfless care for others. And you will hear his willingness to suffer in the will of God for sinners. And you will also hear his satisfaction in completing what God had sent him to do. So consider for a moment his selfless care for others. It was Mark who tells us that it was at the third hour, which is 9 a.m., when they crucified the Lord. And between then and the sixth hour, which would be noon, of course, Jesus made Three statements that reveal his care for others. And listen well to his words because you'll very seldom hear such words of care in this life. We live in what could be aptly called a a cafeteria-style world. It's self-service only. But listen to the words of Jesus and you'll hear selfless care for others. Here first is his care for the hateful that were there. Luke discloses Jesus' first statement from the cross. Each breath, as you might know or you might not know, would be labored as he hung on the cross. Anyone hanging on the cross would labor to breathe. You could not. You could inhale, but you could not exhale unless you were to raise yourself up. Well, the only way to do that was to push with your feet, which is. Fastened to the wood with seven-inch nails and pull with your hands, which were fastened to the cross with the same type of nails. And Jesus does just that. He pushes down with his feet and pulls up with his arms and he raises himself up. And this is what he says. First words from the cross. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. That's Luke twenty. 3, verse 34. Do you marvel at that? I marvel at it. You should marvel at it too. Jesus sees and hears what we read about in the text, the scene that we read about. He hears two thieves casting insults, reviling him, hanging on one, one side and the, the other. He sees soldiers throwing dice at for his garments, gambling to see who got them. He hears and feels the hatred of the crowds that were there. He hears them mocking him and blaspheming him. And yet he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And it is those words that tell us of his selfless care for hateful people. How different that is from what we are used to, I think, even in ourselves, if we'll be honest. We often find it difficult to forgive those who hurt us, even when they seek forgiveness. We want to stay mad, even when someone has apologized to us. We want whatever injustice was done to us to be paid back to them. And it would not cross our mind to pay for their injustice. We don't want to pay for their sins. Rather, we want to make them pay. We oftentimes desire revenge. Revenge rather than forgiveness for their wrongs. How very very different is then the care of the Lord Jesus for the hateful. I mean, these are the people who... Who are, they didn't love him. These are people who had not just spoken a harsh word to him, or a, you know, a word spoken out of you know careless thought or a simple misunderstanding, um, like we get offended by when people say things to us or against us. These are actually those who actually hated him. Those who called him a blasphemer. Those are those. turned him over to be judged by Pilate to bring about his death. These are those he hears speaking abusive language at him. I mean, I think some of them were the very ones who, in fact, had illegally judged him and turned him over to Pilate. These are the very people for whom Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And I think we should understand that Jesus' prayer was not just for the hateful people there that day, but for all who have been haters of God, all who have been haters of Christ. Well, I prayed those words for those who to that point in time had rejected him, he was in fact praying for all of those who reject the truth of God for the lie. Who turn from God and believe themselves to be their own God, in control of their own life? For those who reject that there is a God to whom they will give an account. So Jesus prayed for people like that, from the time of his death on the cross to today, rejectors of God, rejectors of Christ. Now I I, I praise God that probably most of us here. Maybe all of us, I don't know, but most of us here have received the forgiveness for which Jesus prayed. That really should elicit an amen. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, amen. If you've received his forgiveness, you should have great joy for that. And I would pray that if you're here today and you've not received the forgiveness for which he prayed, that you would receive it today. It's offered to you by him. If you could hear how Paul put it, it was mentioned to us just this last week by Pastor Greg during our time of remembrance. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts when you hear him. And he's speaking to you today. So he had care for the hateful and he also had care for the hopeless. It's Luke that reveals the second statement from the Lord during those first three hours. And he tells us that at some point in time there was a change in the criminals. Mark tells us that both criminals were hurling abusive speech at him. But Luke takes up the narrative and he says something happened. And the one criminal says to the other criminal, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And and indeed we justly, we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, if I were hanging there and I had been being abused by these two men, and one suddenly said to me, hey, remember me remember me, I might respond with something like, you know the difference between a fat chance and a slim chance? (laughs) That would be no chance. No chance will I remember you except that you deserve what you're getting. But thank God Jesus isn't like me. Instead, Jesus, having raised himself up once again, shows his selfless care for the hopeless when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. Now, I, I don't know about you, but can you imagine the criminal's thoughts at that moment? Yeah. For many days, he probably sat in his cell hoping that by some luck he might escape the punishment that he was due. Maybe he, would be, maybe he would be the one that would be released by Pilate when Rome showed their generosity towards the Jews in releasing a criminal during the Passover feast. I'm sure he sat many hours considering the end to which his activities had brought him. Perhaps he regretted his actions for which he was about to die. I mean, he most certainly was hopeless, right? Hopeless. And all the more did his hope disappear as he, too, was carrying his cross beam through the streets of Jerusalem and as he was placed on his, the cross and nailed to it as Jesus had been and lifted up to die. Hmm. And the words of this man being crucified along with Jesus, we see a beautiful example of something. And that is an example of repentance that leads to forgiveness. Repentance that leads to forgiveness. You say, well, where do you see that? Well, let me, let me share it with you. I mean, it's, it's powerful. First of all, consider a statement to the other thief continuing to hurl abuses at Jesus. He said to that, that criminal, do you not fear God? Something in him had changed over his time hanging next to Jesus. He had ceased reviling Jesus, and now he speaks to other man facing death with him and urges him to come to his senses, right? He had come to his senses. Then we see his acknowledgement of his sins. He states that he and the other criminal were under a sentence of condemnation, and they were justly receiving their due reward for their deeds. That's an acknowledgement of sin. And then we see his open confession of the holiness and innocence of Jesus. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. And then we see his belief in Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, you see that when he refers to Jesus coming into his kingdom he's a king, will come into his kingdom. And then finally, I think we see his humble prayer for forgiveness. It is simply in the words, remember me. It's not remember me and judge me for my sin. It's remember me with kindness for my belief in you as the Messiah. So this whole man's life was absolutely changed in a moment when Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I mean, did his circumstances change? No. No, he was still to die for his crimes done against humanity. But his crimes against the holy God, the holy one, were immediately, completely forgiven. His heart was filled with hope, no longer hopeless. a hope which is a sure expectation, as we've been reminded already, the confidence. He is now knowing, I will be with Jesus in his kingdom, forgiven. The Lord's statement declares his selfless care for all of those, all of those who at a particular point in time have recognized their sin for what it is and have become aware of, the consequences that they deserve and they've recognized Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior in order that they could be forgiven. You see, the the, the scripture declares, like in Ephesians 2.12, that we too were without hope because we were without God in the world. But the moment we trust in Jesus Christ, his words penetrate our hopeless hearts and, and we claim his words that he spoke to the criminal. Slightly different. Well, we would claim he would say to us, truly, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. Now, the difference between us and the criminal, the criminal knew that day that he was to die. We don't know the day we're going to die, do we? All our days are ordained by God before we're ever born. They're already fixed, but we don't know how many days we have. That criminal knew that day he was to die and he would enter into the kingdom of God. We don't know that. But we can know that when we die, we will pass from this life into his presence. Why? Because Jesus himself said, like in John 5:24, that the moment that we put our trust in him, we pass out of spiritual death into eternal life. Judgment no longer awaits us. Why? Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans eight one. We do not fear God's judgment anymore. Why? Because the perfect love of God has cast out all fear of judgment. First John four eighteen. But understand if you have not recognized what this man recognized, the the sinless Son of God dying on the cross for His sin, taking on Himself the consequence of your sin, then the promise of entering into God's presence when you die isn't there for you. You will not enter into His presence when you die. In fact, your end will be the same as the other criminal who died that day the same end as all of those who continue to reject God and reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is put in these words by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, you will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. But hear me, please hear me, If you've not received Christ before this day, if you've not received the forgiveness that he prayed for that day as he hung on the cross, it can be yours today. It can be. All you have to do is acknowledge your sin, recognize him as the Savior God, the one who died for your sin, who bore your sins in his body as he hung on the tree and resurrected from the dead to prove that he had conquered both sin and death. And if you would pray that or acknowledge that to God. Even in the quiet of your heart, you would immediately have your life changed like that one criminal. Mm -hmm. In a moment, you'd realize, I've been forgiven and I will be with him in paradise. Care for the evil, care for the hopeless, also care for the hurting. As John records the Lord's third statement in those first three hours, he writes that in the crowd, mostly made up of those who had rejected Christ and called for his crucifixion, there were some of those who were followers of Christ, those who had believed in him already. And and, and two of them that were there was John, the Lord's closest friend, who was an apostle, as well as Jesus' own mother, Mary. She was there along, along with the Uh, Mary, the mother of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. There's something about those Marys. Three of them there. And, And John informs us when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks down at John standing next to his mother, and he says to his mother, woman, behold your son. Not speaking about, look at me, mom, look what's happened to me, but saying, mom, look to your Look at John. He will become son in my place. And then he said to John, Behold your mother. Behold your mother. Do you get what he's doing there? He's caring for the hurting. (laughs) Who's hurting more? Jesus. Right? He's hurting more, but his care is for others who are hurting and how they must have been hurting at that time. Each act of mockery of the crowd crying out must have stung them deeply. I mean, can you imagine how Mary must have felt as she looks up and she sees her son hanging there, put there by the hands of cruel men? Did she think back to when Jesus was just a baby and they'd gone to the temple and a man by the name of Simeon, a prophet, had lifted up Jesus and said, Behold, now I... Now I see salvation. And he said to Mary, in the days to come, your heart will be pierced as with the sword. And think of John, who in fact was the closest disciple to Jesus. How he must have heard as his, as his Lord and teacher and his best friend is being crucified. But J- Jesus even as he suffers through his crucifixion, cares and provides for them in their hurting state. If you don't know it, hear these words, Jesus still cares for the hurting. He cares for hurting people. That is his nature. He cares for you. If you're struggling with a heavy burden of some sin that is entangling your life. He cares for you who are weary of living in a dark and perverted world. Crying out, come Lord Jesus. He cares for you who may be suffering from a broken heart. He cares for you whose hearts are filled with pain and sorrow. He cares for you as he cares for me, those suffering with physical conditions that may even be leading to death. He cares for the hurting. I hope that you've heard his words. If you're a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ, rejoice in them. Rejoice in them. And if you don't know Jesus, you've not yet put your trust in, hear them well, because what you've heard is selfless care for hateful people. Selfless care for hopeless people. Selfless care for hurting people. And you're one of those if you haven't put your trust in Christ. He cares for you. But we also hear his words, suffering in the will of God. It's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three tell us that at the sixth hour, noon, darkness fell across the face of the earth until the nine hour, uh, ninth hour, t- noon, for three hours. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us exactly what caused it, but it had to be miraculous. But I know this for sure, that it was God's symbolic way of saying that the darkness had overcome the light, though it would only be for a short period of time. Matthew and Mark alike tell us that it was at the ninth hour that Jesus raised himself up once again, And he cried out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, Lamas the Bakhtini, which translated, it means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hmm. These were not the words of inquiry. Jesus was not Actually, inquiring of the Father, why have you abandoned me? Why have you done this to me? He knew exactly why the Father had turned his face and could no longer look at him in delight. Please understand that these words tell us that Jesus was willing to suffer in the will of God for us, for sinners, that we could be forgiven and enter into his presence when we die. It was... According to Isaiah 53 and verse 10, the will of God to put a son to suffering. It says, "It says there, it pleased the Father to crush the Son, putting him to grief." Acts 2:23. After the resurrection of Christ, Peter would declare that Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan of God and foreknowledge of God, and even though he was nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put to death. It looked like it was bad men doing something to a good man, but actually it was God doing something to his son and the son willingly submitting to it. According to John 12, and verse 27, during the week of his passion, sometime during that week, Jesus said these words, now my soul has become troubled. A, a very strong term there, troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this purpose that I have come to this hour Three of the Gospels relate how shortly before he was betrayed by Judas, he prayed in the garden. These words, you're probably familiar. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. Now, he was in perfect agreement with the will of the Father. That statement does not suggest other words. That statement stresses the suffering of his soul. As he was thinking about what he would be going through. Not just the physical torment, but the spiritual torment of the Father turning his face away from the Son as he bore the sins of the world. God made him, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what happened in those dark three hours. Jesus had the sin of the world placed upon him. And then Jesus had the holy wrath of God towards sin thrust down on him. Why? So that we could be forgiven. When that happened, when Jesus bore the wrath of God, a suffering unknown since the beginning of time took place. And Jesus' suffering was no mistake. As I've said, it was not simply the result of unjust man acting against an innocent man. His suffering was, was a result be, of an agreement between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the counsels of God before time began that the, someone would need to go, that the Son of God would need to come into this world, live a perfect life, and then die a death in the place of sinners. Both. The Old and the New Testament point to the sovereignty of God and the suffering of the Son of God. So it wasn't really just a miscarriage of justice, but rather it was the perfect justice of a holy God and the voluntary sacrifice of the Son of God bearing our sin. It wasn't really just a traitorous act by a close friend who delivered Jesus over to his enemies, but it was the fulfillment, as we've seen, of the predetermined plan of God to provide a way of deliverance for all those who chose from the foundation of the world. Since Adam sinned, really, to be a sinner, to violate God's will, and to be deserving of his wrath. But God wanted there to be some who would experience forgiveness, be welcomed into His presence. I'm so glad I'm one of them, and every one of us in this room can be there. So can't you hear Jesus saying in these words, "I, I I'm perfectly satisfied in suffering in the will of God for sinners." And then lastly, you find satisfaction in his words. Satisfaction in fulfilling the purpose of why he came. And it's John who tells us these last words. There's three statements that Jesus makes. And he puts it this way in John nineteen twenty eight. Knowing all things that had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. You see, the darkness was no longer there. It had become light again, and now he's going to be talking directly to the Father in a moment where he couldn't, when the weight of the sin was placed upon him, the wrath of God was thrust down on him. But he knew, it's accomplished, it's done. All that is necessary to provide salvation is done. Now, he hadn't died yet, but he knew that in a moment he would be dead. And he knew that three days later he would resurrect from the dead, and he would secure forgiveness for all those who would trust in him. And so he said, I thirst. Now, what does that have to do with forgiveness? And well, let me tell you what it has to do. With. He was parched from dehydration. That was part of what would take place through crucifixion, the blood loss, and, and so on. He was dehydrated. And and so he declares his thirst. Not just because he was thirsty, but he declared he was thirsty so they could get a drink of something so they could speak out loud these next words. It is finished. It is finished. All that was necessary to provide salvation for sinners. And then, then Luke records the last words of Jesus before he died. Being satisfied that he had fulfilled his reason for coming, Jesus cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up his spirit. That's how John put it at the end. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus was satisfied that he had done all that the Father had given him to do to provide salvation. He had come to bear sin's penalty. He had come to set the prisoner of sin free. He had come to bring immortality and life to light for all those who would believe in him, secure heaven for those who would receive his forgiveness. And so he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. No one took his life from him. He gave it up on his own accord. And three days later, he took it up again. That's a message from the Christ. Aren't those loving words from a Savior? Yeah. Now, I don't have a lot of words. The Scripture has some words, but it's not going to take long to finish this. No, you realize I was joking about the three or four hours. I really meant an hour and a half to two hours, but no, we're almost done. We're almost going to land the plane in a minute. The flight's almost over. And then we'll get a, go over and... And, and get some food on the other side, which you don't get during the plane flight. We know that nowadays. <laughs> the words that come out of the empty tomb, we have to have to consider them. It's Resurrection Day. Right. What are those words? I, let me just put it this way. It is salvation for any who will believe. That is really the words that come out of the empty tomb. Words spoken not by the dying Savior, but by the angels of God, and by women who saw him resurrected, and by apostles who saw him resurrected, and by the Lord himself. And if you will listen, if you will listen, you will hear words of forgiveness for those who believe. Now, consider for a moment the disappointment of the disciples and all of his followers when Jesus died on the cross. Their expectations, gone, out the window. Their hopes disappeared. Their, their Lord and teacher had been taken away through death. Their grief is intense. Sorrow weighs them down. The day had come and gone. And with the death of Jesus came fear and sorrow growing deeper and deeper. The Sabbath day, as Pastor Tom noted, went, came and went, Without much fanfare, quiet. And then on the first day of the week, the women are seen coming. They start out in the darkness. By by the time they arrive at the tomb, the sun has risen. And they're having a conversation with themselves Who's going to roll away the stone? Why were they coming to the tomb? With a purpose to anoint the body of Jesus with spices and perfume. But who's going to roll this giant stone out of the way? Uh, they didn't have to worry about that. They got there, and the stone was rolled away. And the, the seal that Rome had put on it was broken. And the Roman soldiers that were meant to guard the tomb to protect the body of Jesus from being stolen by his disciples were laying on the ground unconscious, as though they were dead. But there, are someone, there is someone there, and the two angels talked to them They talked to them. And this is what they said. Tom read it earlier, but do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. I know why you're here. But he's not here. Did you get that? He's not here. He's risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. You see, the stone was rolled away, if you didn't get this, not to let Jesus out, but to let people in those women, the disciples, to let them in to see that his body was not there, that he, in fact, was risen as he said he would be. Now, they didn't fully understand it, but as Matthew wrote, it filled those women with, with awe, and they went away with amazement and, and joy and even some fear. And the scripture shows that a little later, while the women were still in the garden, Jesus appeared to them. First John records that he appeared to Mary Magdalene, a woman that he had healed from demonic oppression. He told her, don't cling to me. (laughs) I'm not here to stay. I'm going to be going to the Father. And then he appeared to the other women who were there, and as the scripture says, that they fell down and they worshiped him. And then later he appeared to Peter at some point, according to Luke 24, 34, we don't see that interaction. And then a little bit later, he's on a road from Jerusalem going to a, a village by the name of Emmaus, and there's two guys talking, and Jesus just suddenly shows up and says, what are you guys talking about? What's going on? And they express, like, haven't you heard what happened? I mean, all our hopes were dashed, basically. The one that we thought was in Messiah, he's dead. It's all gone. All that we dreamed about, it's over. And they were getting close to a village, and the men said to Jesus, well, why don't you join us for a meal? And so Jesus did go in for a meal with them. And as they were breaking bread, Jesus suddenly vanished from their sight. And this is what the men said. Were not our hearts burning within us as he spoke to us? And then a little later, he shows up in Jerusalem in a locked room with the other disciples, the apostles, They're there because they're afraid what happened to Jesus might happen to them. The door's locked. Jesus suddenly appears in their midst, and he speaks to them. Here's what he said. Peace. Peace be with you. This is awesome. They thought they were seeing a ghost, is how the scripture puts it. Peace be with you. Luke records some dialogue going on regarding them, but... One thing we know from John's gospel is that one of the apostles was missing. His name was Thomas. And when Jesus left and then Thomas came back, the other disciples were like, hey, we saw the Lord. He really is risen, just as he said. Nope, not going to get me to believe that stuff. I won't believe that unless I can put my finger in the nail prints in his hand. And I won't believe that unless I can put my hand and the wound in his side you're not going to get me to believe that no way you guys are exaggerating or you're imagining or whatever and then john's gospel tells us that eight days later eight days later they're in the same upper room but thomas is there the door is locked once again and jesus suddenly appears in their midst as he had eight days earlier and he spoke to them guess what he said Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And looked directly at Thomas and said, Thomas, put your finger into the imprint of the nail in my hand. Put your hand into the wound in my side and be believing, not unbelieving. And Thomas responded. And he didn't say, nope, I won't believe it. He didn't say that. What he said was this, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, these important words for us, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and believe. If you don't get it, that's us. And every other believer, ever since the time Jesus ascended back into heaven. Now, what is the point of all this? What is the point of musing on the, a message from the cross and a message from the tomb? Well, Jesus declared the point of it when he was talking to his disciples on that first Sunday evening when he had resurrected. He opened their minds, Luke tells us, 45, 24, 45 through 47. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. What was the point? There's forgiveness in Jesus' name. There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we can be saved. There's no other name that can provide forgiveness for our sins. We can't earn forgiveness. It must be graciously given by Christ. So what what should we do? What should we do with this? Well, <laughs> it's pretty easy. We should repent and believe. If, we, if we've been rejecting up to this point, we should repent and believe. And if we've already believed, then we say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord for forgiveness which he provided through his suffering death and resurrection but if you repent and believe if you came here this morning not believing then you can experience the words of the criminal who sought forgiveness you can hear you can say to Jesus Jesus remember me with kindness don't judge me for my sin give me forgiveness let me come into your kingdom And you should be like the women and like Thomas, who when they saw the resurrected Lord, even though we haven't seen him, we believe, when they saw him, they fell down and they worshiped him. Mm -hmm. Knowing these truths should cause us to worship our great God. So, you've listened. You've listened. I thank you for doing that to a message from the cross and from the tomb. You've heard his his care for others you've heard his willingness to suffer in the will of God you've heard his satisfaction and fulfilling what God had given him to do and you've also heard words of comfort and peace and encouragement and a call to faith from the empty tomb but I want to take us back there just in conclusion let's go In our mind, right? We're not going there. We're not transporting via Star Trek means to the empty tomb. But I want us to go there. And you might want to just, I encourage you, you could just close your eyes as I finish this out and consider this. Because I want you to listen. I want you to listen. If you do, you'll hear the angel say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. If you will listen carefully, you will hear his words of comfort. Peace be with you. And if you will listen, you will hear his words of assurance. Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your heart? See my hands and feet, that is I myself, and touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Listen, and you'll hear Thomas say, My Lord and my God. Listen, and you'll hear the Lord say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live. Even if he dies, and he, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, that is, never die spiritually. Listen. Listen, and you will hear a loving Savior say to you, Be not unbelieving, but believing. Blessed are you if you do not see and yet believe. Father, we are thankful for the word of God, thankful for these words from the scripture that speak about the love of the Lord Jesus for sinners. Thank you for his words, loving words from a Savior. Please use them as I prayed earlier in each of our hearts as we need it. And if there's someone here, Lord, who has been rejecting you, have never believed, have not received your forgiveness, may you draw them to repentance right now. And in the quiet of their heart, may they express their desire for forgiveness for forgiveness from Jesus. And as they do that, may you give them peace because they know They've been forgiven. And Lord, for all of us who already know the Lord Jesus and love the Lord Jesus and are thankful for what he's done, we declare to you, you are worthy. You are worthy of all praise and adoration and thanksgiving. We praise you on this day for your death, burial, and resurrection to secure a right relationship with God for us. And we pray this in your great name. Amen.